Well, I would invite you to please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to begin this morning, Matthew chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible uh, in the seats in front of you, we have two different volumes. So it's going to be either page 771 or 822, Matthew chapter 16. And near the end of our service today, we have the joy of affirming Austin Leung, one of the men in our church. We have the joy of affirming him as a new deacon among us. And this is no small thing. It's no small event as it's a part of what the Lord Jesus is doing in building his magnificent church even among us. And so it just seemed fitting this morning to take a break from the regular study that we've been doing through the book of Colossians in the New Testament, at least in the times that I'm preaching, we've been going through Colossians, uh, but in connection with what we're doing in affirming Austin at the end of our service, it seemed good to come to this passage and look at a number of other passages regarding how the Lord Jesus is building his magnificent church. So I want to read verses 13 to 20 here in Matthew 16. And then I'll lead us in prayer and we'll move into what the Lord has for us. But let's hear God's eternal and living word, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer again. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for the splendor and for the majesty of your great works. How wondrous are all of your works in creation and redemption and in providence. And our Lord Jesus, we rejoice in all that you are doing in building your church throughout the world and throughout history and also among us in this local church. We pray that you would teach us from your word now that we might walk worthy as your people and do our part within your beautiful work, praising your glorious name. Pray that you would empower me by your spirit to faithfully and clearly preach your word and that you would be honored in all of this. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, amen and amen. Well, as we know, throughout history, there have been no lack of beautiful and magnificent buildings built by the hands of human beings. Uh, we could think of the ancient Colosseum in Rome or the Taj Mahal in India. 
We can think of Notre Dame in France or St. Basil's Cathedral in Russia. We can think of the Sydney Opera House in Australia or the Burj Khalifa skyscraper, the tallest building in the world in Dubai. And of course, the indisputable crown jewel of all man-made buildings right here in America. And I'm speaking, of course, of the Gaylord Family Oklahoma Memorial Stadium, the home of the Oklahoma Sooners football team, the world-famous Palace on the Prairie. I know you're all familiar with that. I had to say that as an Oklahoma boy. Well, we could identify a lot of other man-made buildings as well. But man-made buildings are indeed one thing, but collectively, they are absolutely nothing in comparison to the eternal, glorious, and magnificent church that the Lord Jesus Christ is building, just as he promised in the text I read from this morning, specifically in verse 18. And as we're going to see, Jesus' church is not a physical structure per se, but rather it is a spiritual building comprised of his blood-bought and redeemed people. And even as indicated in the title of the sermon, I want to focus this morning on the question of how Jesus is doing this. And so to answer this question, we're going to start in Matthew 16, and then we're going to survey a, a number of other passages this morning. So this is a little bit different uh, orientation to preaching than what we normally do in working through the details of one passage. We're going to start here. We're going to look at a number of other passages in the New Testament. And my aim in this is for all of us to understand more of this work that the Lord Jesus is doing, to understand more about his design for his church with deacons, with pastor elders, and with the whole church body, with every member of the church. Again, it just seemed fitting in connection with uh, the blessing of affirming Austin as a deacon among us this morning. And my prayer is that we'll not only understand more about how Christ is working, but in that understanding that we'll also be all the more encouraged to praise and to rejoice in God all the more and also as his people for those who belong to him to keep walking worthy as his blood-bought people doing our part in Christ's good work. Now in all that we're going to look at this morning, let me give you the Really the main point, the central idea of everything that we're going to see, it's basically my sermon title, it's this, that Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is building his magnificent church. The Lord Jesus Christ is building his magnificent church. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is doing this by his word, through his spirit, with his people to the glory of his Father. Jesus is building his magnificent church by his word, through his spirit, with his people to the glory of his Father. 
And this is going to help us, I think, as we move through things, understand his design and purpose for the office of pastor elder, for the office of deacon, and even what it means for all of us as members of the body of Christ for those who are believers. So again, we'll start here in Matthew 16, and then I want to just move through a number of other passages. Uh, you might even jot them down as I, as I mention them. If you're not able to turn to them quickly enough, you can look at them another time. Uh, but I'll try to be clear in identifying those of how Jesus is building his church. So in Matthew 16, and specifically there the, in the passage we looked at in verses 13 and 14, Jesus has asked his disciples, his followers, who people say he is. And they give him a variety of answers. And then he asks them directly in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter gets the gold star for the day. He nails the answer in verse 16 when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, then Jesus affirms Peter's answer, and he explains that Peter did not figure this out on his own. He didn't come up with this on his own, but that the Father in heaven revealed it to him. And then notice what Jesus says in verses 18 and 19. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And ultimately, the rock that Jesus refers to there, even in connection with Peter, who was one of the foundational disciples, one of the foundational apostles, but the rock ultimately that Jesus is referring to is the right saving confession of faith in Jesus Christ that Peter had just made in verse 16 when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That confession of right saving faith in Jesus is the rock. He is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah, the son sent from the living God. And Jesus' point is that it's upon this saving confession of faith that Jesus will build his church. Now, the term church that Jesus uses here is referring to his assembly, his gathering of his people who believe on him. So Jesus is talking about people when he says, I will build my church. And he's saying that he will build his church through people who, like Peter has just expressed, confess their faith in the Father, or confess their faith in him whom the Father has revealed. It's on the basis of that right confession of faith that they will be saved, that they will become Christ's people. And that's happened for many of us who, by God's grace, he's brought to saving faith, to know Jesus as the Father has revealed him in his word, and to confess him, to trust him, to acknowledge him as God's living son as our Lord and Savior. Well, then when Jesus says in verse 19 that he'll give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter, and then he talks about binding and loosing, he's referring there to his authority that he will be entrusting to Peter and by extension to the whole church. 
And this authority of binding and loosing, we can think of it also in a sense of closing and opening, just like keys are used for. It ultimately comes to involve the church's responsibility to affirm or deny the credibility of a person's confession of faith in Jesus on the basis of what God has revealed in his word. Now, a lot more could be said about that, of course, but the main thing to see for now is that Jesus promises to build his church upon the right confession of faith in who he is, as God has revealed him in his word. So let's see how this develops, okay? How is it that Jesus goes about doing this through this confession? And we'll first look at just a couple of passages, a couple of more passages in Matthew, and then we're going to move to some other parts of the New Testament. Turn over a page or two to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> and there in verses 15 to 18, we hear these words. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, if your brother sins against you, Matthew 18, verse 15, if he sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then he says, verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's echoing what he said earlier in Matthew 16. And he again speaks here of the church's authority and responsibility to affirm or deny the credibility of a person's confession of faith. And with what he explains, if someone professes faith in Christ, but comes to be seen to be living in unrepentant sin, we all wrestle with sin. Every believer wrestles with sin. But the point here is someone who's not repenting from it. They're not fighting it. They're not turning from it. So someone who's professed faith but is living in unrepentant sin, Jesus says that after a multi-step process of seeking to confront that person with their sin, if they're still unrepentant, the person is eventually to be put out of the church and to be regarded as an unbeliever and to be seen as an unbeliever. And so Jesus builds his church and he works through his church to preserve the purity of his church. Now, other places in the New Testament are going to say a lot more about that, but I want, to see, want you to see that, that this is in its sort of in its seed form where Jesus speaks about this. We'll keep that in mind as we then turn to the end of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28. And the very end of chapter 28, uh, verses uh, 18 through 20, Jesus has gone to the cross, he has risen from the dead, and he is now giving final instructions and exhortations to his disciples before he ascends uh, to heaven, to the Father in heaven. And really what he says here, verses 18 to 20, is a, is a summary of, of everything that he's been preparing his disciples for throughout the course of his entire ministry with them before he went to the cross and then rose from the dead. And we often refer to this, rightly so, as the Great Commission because it crystallizes the heart of what the mission of God's people is, what the mission of the church is. And so Jesus came, verse 18, and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the central command in what Jesus says there is to make disciples. And it assumes that we're going and we're proclaiming Jesus to others, proclaiming the hope of the gospel to others. He then says that those who ultimately come to faith are to be baptized. They're to give public testimony of their confession of Christ through baptism, symbolically expressing their identity and union with him. And then the church has a responsibility to continue to teach every believer. And that's, that's part of what the very essence of the life of the church is, that we're ministering to one another. We're discipling one another. We're helping teach one another all that God has revealed of what it means to know and follow Christ according to his word. And you see, Jesus is issuing that commandment from the standpoint of his sovereign eternal authority. And there's an aspect of that, which again flows from what he's entrusting to the church as we uh, enact what he's called us to do in making disciples. Well, that leads then to uh, some other passages. Now, as I said, we're going to look at a lot of different passages and just touch on them very briefly, uh, but I want you to see this. So even if you're not able to turn to them all, maybe jot them down again and can look at them later. Uh, But one I want you to hear is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The book of Acts is the history, really, of the birth and the growth of the early church following Uh, following the ascension of Christ. And in Acts chapter 1, the early part of chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's about to ascend to the Father in heaven. And he says this in verse 8 to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then the whole rest of the book of Acts is basically explaining how the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers, enabling them to bear witness of Christ, first initially in Jerusalem, then to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and then to the utter ends of the earth, to the end of the earth. But this is God's design in and through Christ. This is what he's doing to build his church uh, through his word, through his spirit, through his people, and all ultimately to the glory of the Father. In Acts chapter 2, we learn of how this begins to happen. As the Holy Spirit comes and indwells uh, those original disciples, and in that context, none other than Peter himself stands up and he begins to proclaim the gospel, and he preaches Jesus, risen from the dead. And towards the end of chapter 2, in verse 37, we read of how people responded to him preaching. And there were people from all over the place that had gathered in Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, which means they were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so he's inviting them to turn from their sins, to repent, and to trust Christ. And in that trusting of Christ, to give testimony of that by being baptized. 
And he's not saying that baptism will save them, but he's acknowledging that baptism is the, is the follow-up flowing from what Jesus had said in Matthew 28 to give public testimony of their identification with Christ and to know the forgiveness of their sins. And it's an open invitation. It's an open call to any and all who would hear. And even if you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Christ, he's calling you. He wants you to know him that you might know the forgiveness of your sins and receive eternal life and be delivered from God's judgment. But that's what begins to happen as the Holy Spirit comes. God uses his word through his people to proclaim life in Christ Jesus, the one who is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then the church begins to be built. And so we see then in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2, with many other words, he, Peter, bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. You see what's happening? Jesus is beginning to build his church. And the rest of the book of Acts now unfolds how that begins to happen in Jerusalem, surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. I won't take time to read it, but uh, what follows at the end of chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, is a description of the life of the early church in their growing fellowship with Christ and with one another and, and all the dynamics of that. It's rich and it's wonderful. Well, then a little bit later in the book of Acts, there arises a crisis in the early church. And this is going to help us begin to, to get a bearing on what God is doing in Christ, how he's building his church, but also now we begin to see uh, the early forms of, of the office and responsibilities of elders and of deacons. So go over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And there's a crisis in the church. And so we begin to read in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the church is growing, in other words, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Apparently, in the church, there were these groups of Hellenistic people from Greek origin that had uh, converted to Judaism, but now they, along with native Jews, the Hebrews, had all come to faith in Christ. But there was still some aspect of segregation going on, and apparently there were numerous widows within both groups. One was being provided for with daily distribution of food under the oversight of the apostles, but another group was being totally neglected. So you can imagine the problem that this was creating, let alone the physical problem of, of, of some of these dear ladies going without food, but there was a lot of anger, no doubt. There was a, there was a ripe opportunity for division uh, to begin to happen. And so this is a major problem that the apostles are faced with. With, we don't know how many women were in each of these groups, but we do know there were thousands and thousands of people in the church because we read of a few thousand being saved on that very first uh, point of time back in Acts chapter 2. Well, so what happens? Verse 2, the 12 summoned, the 12 referring to the 12 apostles, the foundational leaders of the church, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. They gathered the whole church together, and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, this is massively insightful. These original apostles who were the men who followed Jesus, they knew and they understood that their priority under Christ was to be given to prayer and to the ministry of his word, to preaching and to teaching. They also knew that they had a very real crisis on their hands that was threatening to divide the early church. And so they had a, they had a double crisis in a sense because they had to not only deal with this crisis, but they had to do it in a way that would not pull them away from their priority of the ministry of the word of God and prayer. And so what do they do? Well, they call the whole congregation together. They, they instruct them to appoint some specific men, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. They had to be men of godly character that they could be delegated with this responsibility so that the issue could be addressed, but so that the apostles could continue with their ministry of prayer in the word of God. So they weren't trying to avoid responsibility. They were wanting to see things dealt with, but they were trying to maintain their priority of the word of God and prayer. And so we read in verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And so uh, these are who the congregation identifies. They're affirmed by the congregation and by the apostles, and they're given over to that task. And then notice what we read in verse 7. Here's the key. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And that's significant that Luke, who is the human author of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy God, what he's ultimately wanting to point out is how Christ is providing for his word to continue to go forward. And even though there's this very real crisis, not only the functional need of these widows being fed, but of averting the potential division that was happening, it's dealt with in a way that allows the word of God to continue to go forward. In other words, the need is met, the priority of the apostles is maintained, the church continues to grow, and the gospel keeps going forward. Because Christ is building his church through his word, through his spirit, with his people, and to the glory of the Father. And most of scholars, and I would fall in this line as well, I don't fashion myself to be a scholar per se, but they believe, and I believe, that this is the early form of, of what becomes the office of both elders and deacons. And it helps us understand the relationship in God's design of the role and responsibility of pastor elders to be given primarily to the ministry of the word of God and of prayer, and of deacons to be those who assist the elders in a way that preserves the unity of the body and that also meets very real and functional needs. And I'll say a little bit more about that as we move on. 
Well, I'll mention just a couple of other passages in Acts before we look at some others. In Acts 14.23, you don't necessarily need to turn there, uh, but we read there that it was part of Paul's strategy, if you will. Paul, who was uh, the first missionary in the early church, really, who went all over the place proclaiming Christ. That when he would go somewhere and, appoint and, and proclaim Christ, people would be converted. He'd gather them together in churches. And we're told in Acts 14.23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And this appointment of elders is referring to pastor elders, shepherds, overseers. Uh, these terms are all used interchangeably in various places in Scripture. But what Paul is doing, Paul as an apostle, is extending that responsibility of shepherding care for his people to elders, a plurality of elders in every church. And we see that in other places, like in Acts chapter 20, Paul speaks to elders from the city of Ephesus, and we see other instances of that as well. But so what we find in the early church then, as it's recorded in the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit is, is empowering believers to be proclaiming Christ, people are getting saved, they're getting gathered into churches, that that authority of Christ, which he has delegated to the church, uh, comes through the apostles and then also to the elders who share in that ministry. And again, as it's illustrated in Acts 6, we see the beginning of this office of deacons in assisting the elders in ways that help them preserve their priorities, but also minister to the whole body. Well, let me move into a few other passages here that we'll look at and, and hopefully get a, a fuller sense of this as it continues to develop in the New Testament. Go to the book of Ephesians, if you would to the book of Ephesians, Paul writing to believers in the city of Ephesus. It's a number of pages over from the book of Acts. <clears throat> and in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is explaining and really um, illuminating and rejoicing in the riches of the spiritual blessings that God has given his people in Christ. And everything that he addresses in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is about the nature and the wonder and the richness of these spiritual blessings. That God has taken people who are, he describes at the beginning of chapter 2, as spiritually dead people, enslaved to our sins, under God's wrath. But in Christ, God has made us alive in Christ. He's given us new life. He's brought us into union with Christ and with his people. And through the blood of Christ, he's forgiven all of our sins. And so we have a whole new identity. We have a whole new reality that we are no longer spiritually dead and alienated from God, but we're spiritually alive and reconciled and in union with God as his children through the work of Christ. So that's what he's talking about through all of chapters 1, 2, and 3. But I want you to notice near the end of chapter 2, because this helps us understand uh, this, this reality of Christ building his church. We see this again. Look at verses 19 to the end of the chapter in Ephesians 2. He's speaking to believers and he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, whatever you don't fully catch in everything that he says there, you hear this imagery of building and structure and the household of God and, and all that God is doing on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, all that God revealed in his word through the apostles and prophets, which we now have in scripture, recorded for us in scripture. He's saying, you're part of that building. And so he's talking about this spiritual building. And this is certainly echoing language from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant temple that we heard read about earlier from 2 Chronicles chapter 2. That physical structure was one thing, but now there's a far greater spiritual structure that God is building in Christ with his people. Well, over in chapter 3, in verses 10 and 11, Paul talks about how it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed. If you look down to verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And the point to see is that this work that God is doing in saving people to himself through faith in Jesus Christ, gathering us as his people in union with him and in union with one another is all magnificent and full of splendor and full of glory because it all points back to God in praise. And that's what he's doing in and through the church. And we think about the wonder and the beauty and the glory of all that God has given in creation. Beautiful sky, beautiful clouds, beautiful plants, beautiful animals, beautiful people. Maybe not everybody also beautiful as everybody else, but, but we get that and we see beauty and wonder and mystery and design. All of that, dear friends, is but a shadow of the work that God is doing in saving spiritually dead rebels to become his people in and through whom he displays his glory. Well, then over in Ephesians chapter 4, we get a little more insight into how Jesus is doing this. And we're told in verses 11 through 16 how the now risen Christ, what he is doing in building his church. So just listen to this, verse 11. He, and is referring to the risen and exalted Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Here it is, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
This is a, really a microcosm, if you will, of God's design in building his church as Christ is doing this. He's given particular people, apostles and prophets, as we heard at the end of Ephesians 2, had a foundational role in sharing in God's ongoing revelation, which we now have the completeness of in all of Scripture. He's given other as evangelists. We might think of those as missionaries who go to other places to proclaim Christ. And then the shepherds and teachers, the pastors and teachers, that's really two aspects of one term. We could think of pastor elders. Now, what are they given for? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. When people like me and others that God's given to share in preaching and teaching his word, he's working by his spirit through his word in order to help us all grow and mature in Christ, to know him better and to then serve one another by speaking the truth in love and to minister to one another in that way. Well, just a couple of more passages and we'll wrap this up. A few more actually. If you go over to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter three. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a letter Paul is writing to a, uh, a protege of his named Timothy. And Timothy has been commissioned by Paul to actually be in the city of Ephesus, the city where we just read that letter from, in order to help establish the right kind of leadership and in order to establish the health and the growth of the church in God's design. Now, this is where he speaks specifically about elders and about deacons. And I want you to see this. So 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. First of all, he addresses matters of elders. We could say pastor elders. So he says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. In other words, it's a good thing if a man desires to be in this role and this responsibility. It says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He may become puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must dwell, be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, there is a host, of course, of character qualities there regarding his personal life, regarding his family life, regarding his reputation. It doesn't mean that he's perfect, but it means there's evidence of the Spirit of God bearing fruit in his life. Well, then, immediately after speaking of elders, verses 8 to 13, he speaks about deacons. So here we have both of these offices directly and explicitly spoken of. So he says, deacons, verse 8, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now again, lots of character qualities above reproach doesn't mean perfection, but it means there's a pattern of, of godliness that is evident. 
And the point to stress is that this really, in a direct way, identifies these two complementary offices within the church of pastor elder on the one hand, deacon on the other hand, and in connection with other passages we've looked at, as well as a lot of others that we could but we won't take time to, it helps us understand this is how Jesus builds his church through the whole body as a whole, but then with some whom he's called to be pastor elders who have a primary role of teaching, preaching, praying, counseling, uh, ministering God's word in those sense, and then deacon in that sense, and then deacons who assist the elders with all kinds of practical, tangible needs among the church body, both personal needs as well as corporate needs, administrative things, functional things, all kinds of things. The deacons are given to assist the elders in that so that the body as a whole is cared for, so that the body as a whole is equipped, and so that the elders continue to prioritize what their responsibility are for the good of the whole body. And this is how God works. Well, there's a lot of other passages we could look at. You might just slip down at the end of chapter 3 there in 1 Timothy because Paul specifically says these are what he's giving to provide for the church. He says, I hope to come to you soon, verse 14, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You see, there's explicit instructions Paul is giving for this is what life in the household of God, this is what life in the church is to look like with elders that he's raised up, with deacons that he's raised up, with the whole church body sharing together. And this is how the Lord Jesus is building his magnificent church, by his word, through his spirit, with his people, to the glory of the Father. And thus we understand just a little bit about the role and responsibility of pastor elders and the role and responsibilities of deacons and the role and responsibilities of the whole church body. We all share in this together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet there are these particular roles that God has assigned to some. And so in, all, in view of all that the Lord Jesus is doing to build his church, we who are his people who have come to faith in Christ are called to share in this. We're called to give greater and greater praise to God for all of his blessings to us in Christ. That goes back to what Ephesians 1 to 3 is really all about. We're called to keep walking worthy and to be doing our part as a part of his body, which is one of the pictures, one of the metaphors that Jesus uses. And even thinking about that body imagery in a local church. One body, the body of Christ, he's the head of it, but there's a lot of different parts, and we all have different roles and responsibilities within his purposes. So, beloved, this is how Jesus is building his magnificent church. And this is why our privilege and our joy of affirming Austin Leung this morning as a new deacon, this is why it is such a big deal. This isn't just something that a bunch of people thought, ah, oh, this would be a fun thing to do and let's do it. No, this is a reflection, an expression of the work that the Lord Jesus is still doing in building his church among us. 
So it's not ultimately about Austin or his dear wife, Wendy, or their new precious little baby, Maisie, who are, are, is here for the first time this morning. I think you'll get, everybody will get to see her. Are you going to bring her up here as well? In just a moment. So, so that's pretty exciting. That's a big deal. But it's not just about them. It's not just about any of us, you see. It's about what the Lord Jesus is doing in building his church. And the privilege that all of us who have come to know him and have been gathered together in this local church, united in him and with one another, are sharing in. And so we say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So let me lead us in a brief prayer, and then we're going to invite Austin and Wendy and Maisie to come and be affirmed them as deacons. Father, we thank you for your abundant goodness and we thank you for even a brief survey of what you are doing, dear Lord Jesus, in building your church. And for any of us whom you have saved from our sins, not owing to anything that we could have ever done, but solely because of your grace and your mercy and your love and your power, what can we do but praise and thank you? And by your grace and strength, seek to walk worthy of this calling that we now have as your children. And to share fully in all that you've called us to as your people, even in and through this local church, in connection with the work you're doing elsewhere in the world. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in raising up Austin, for his dear wife, Wendy, and even as you've blessed them now with this new little girl, Maisie, we give you praise and thanks and entrust all to you for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.